One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who like their politics in colors other than red and blue. I hope you're having a wonderful week. I was diagnosed with COVID, and luckily I am vaxxed, luckily I am boosted, luckily I am asymptomatic, and even more luckily, I am prohibited from going anywhere, which for somebody like me is a wonderful thing. Now, we are in part two of our retrospective on the January 6th attack on the Capitol and diving into acts of political violence and what repercussions rally organizers should face for them. And one of the questions that arose after the attack on the Capitol on January 6th was whether Trump and those who spoke at his rally were criminally liable for what happened afterwards. And for this episode, I speak with John Bile. Dean and Professor of Political Science at Middle Tennessee State University, who has done extensive work on the intersection of politics and constitutional law. And in this episode, we discuss the 200 years of case law that make it very difficult for the government to prosecute someone for what they say, whether Donald Trump may have crossed any legal lines, and we explore whether civil suits could present some unintended consequences when it comes to our right to assembly and our right to free speech. I'm especially interested in that last part, and I have a question for you at the end of the episode I'd love your comments on. We dive into a lot of case law in this episode, so pay attention. Class is in session, and it'll help us understand stuff coming up in the next episode. I will be back at the end with that question and my final thoughts. I guess first off, just to get this on recording, you are wearing a Massachusetts tie, correct? <laughs> yes, I am. We have I to am. call that out. Has a bay colony, and I think it looks like it must have your capital there, Will, and may, must be something from Boston. So picked it up in an estate sale not too long ago. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I told John before we hit record that next time I'm coming with a Tennessee tie. So for anybody who's <laughs> listening with a line on one, please let me know. And this is a question I, I, I've never asked anyone before, but how did you come across constitutional law? Well, my major is political science, and one of the fields in government is public law, which is primarily, you know, judicial processing and constitutional law. So uh, my primary area was originally political theory, but I had the advantage of studying under a really good constitutional law scholar and have been teaching that most of the last 40 years or so. Nice. So in your 40-year career, how interesting is this current era versus years prior? You know, when I was in graduate school, that was right during the height of the Watergate investigation. And, you know, I spent an entire summer pretty much listening to the Watergate hearings. And I studied under Henry Abraham at UVA. And he was always, you know, bringing in things from the latest development. It was really exciting. Well, and it's it's interesting. Now, your focus is mainly on the First Amendment, correct? Well, I, I actually, I do a book every couple of years. I'm on this just published the seventh edition. It covers all of the Constitution. I have a one of my largest books is a two volume set on the Constitutional Convention of 1787, how it was formed, who the framers were. And that naturally goes into, you know, how does the Constitution work? The topic 
we're looking at this month, this month being January is when the release is going to come out. But the, the topic we're looking at, the, looking at this month is whether organizers of rallies or protests are liable or should be culpable for acts of violence or damages that occur in during that right. uh, during that event. And of course, we have the attack on the Capitol is probably the biggest one. The The civil suit against the Unite the Right rally is another one which isn't constitutional, but is still kind of in, right. still in the front of everyone's mind. And a lesser known one, McKesson versus Doe. Yeah, I just read that at your suggestion this morning. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, in Louisiana is always a little footnote in mm-hmm. case law books because they have yeah. a civil law system. And it seems like a lot of it was involved more of the interpret who was going to interpret the Louisiana law rather than the First Amendment issue. And oh, it interesting. It's a civil case too, rather interesting. than interesting. I want to get into the civil suits as well a little later on, okay. if if you'll be willing, because sure. I think there's some interesting stuff there. And again, so you'll know, I I have a PhD, not a JD, but I I read a lot of cases and write about. That's fine. So. So to the listener, do not construe anything we're going to hear today as legal advice. If you're planning on organizing <laughs> you your own rally, peril. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it blows up in your face, don't come looking <laughs> to either of us because we are not qualified. But in preparing for this, I did a lot of research into the case law around political speech mm-hmm. and around potential to incite political violence. And I, I came across a lot of cases in the early 20th century and and in the 60s and 70s as well. And that's kind of what brought me to your work. So what I'm really interested in in helping the listener understand is what is the legal history of our interactions with political speech or what is what is the legal history regulating what is incitement to violence and what isn't. And the place I'd like to start with you is at the beginning of the 20th century when a number of states started passing criminal syndicalism laws. Right. And can you explain what those are and kind of what prompted their creation? I can. I'd like to go back just a little or, or a sure. hundred years earlier first. Oh, all right. Let's uh, do it. Because, you know, I, I, I started looking at these and I thought, okay, we're missing something. Okay. And, and that's something that you're, you're undoubtedly aware of. But in, in 1798, Mm-hmm. We had the first two political parties. Mm-hmm. Adams is a Federalist. Jefferson and Madison are Democrats, Democratic Republicans or Republicans. The name changes over mm-hmm. the course. But the Federalists trying to keep down dissent during a period which is known as a quasi war with France adopted yeah. something known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. The Sedition Act basically mm-hmm. made it a crime to criticize the government or the president of the United States. And Jefferson and Madison rightly said, you know, this is a violation of the First Amendment, but people were prosecuted for criticizing the Adams administration and what he was doing. As it turns out, the courts were dominated by Federalists. So you really never got a Supreme Court decision upholding or striking the law down. But when Mr. Jefferson was elected president, he pardoned everyone who had been convicted under the Sedition Act. So then I think at the national level, I think you're right. I don't think we begin to have 
national laws, we had some state libel. Libel laws is, are sort of a whole different category here. But you're right. Most of the cases that we're familiar with come out of the early 20th century. Well, and one of the things I'll add as a little footnote here for, for you listening, the last series we did was on the Supreme Court. And we went into the history of the courts. We spoke, I spoke to the historian out of Penn State, Rachel Sheldon. And you can look for that episode. I think that's beginning of December. But she talked about how the expectation back then was that the courts were just sort of another partisan apparatus of, of government. So it's interesting you talk about how there was never really any ruling on First Amendment grounds. And there's an early case, 1833, Barron versus Baltimore, in which yeah. Chief Justice Marshall decides that the Bill of Rights were designed to limit the national government, not only the national government. So if you had prosecutions for speech at that time, most of them, other than this uh, Sedition Act, would have been under state law. But when the 14th Amendment is adopted in 1868, the court subsequently, through a process generally called selective incorporation, decided over time that certain provisions, today almost all the provisions of the Bill of Rights, also apply to the states via the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Mm. And so you don't really see much interference at the state level until well, Gitlow versus uh, New York is an early free speech case and also an early incorporation case. It's one of the first okay. cases where the court says, we think it's essential enough to due process to have freedom of speech that it would also apply to states as well as to the national government. Okay. No, see, that that is very interesting because I didn't know that and I'm fairly certain the folks listening didn't know that, which is the idea that the states were really given the bulk of the power in well, the and earlier... Yeah, in, this is a this is a product of federalism. You know, we have yeah. division of power. But in in fairness, I should add, you know, that the idea of the Bill of Rights in our own Constitution comes from state declarations of rights. Some people think that the Virginia Declaration of Rights was as influential on early views of what rights were protected and what weren't as was the Bill of Rights that was adopted by the first Congress. So. We get into the 1900s then, mm -hmm. and now it's clearly defined that the First Amendment applies to all citizens of America, regardless of state. And then states start passing these criminal syndicalism laws, which seem to be in response to a rising labor movement and a large rise of uh, labor-centric parties. And if you look overseas as well, I mean, yeah. the Russian Revolution is in 1917. You also have anarchists who occasionally, you know, blow people up or assassinate people in the United States as well. So it was similar to the fears in like 1919 to 20. There's the first Red Scare. Then again, in the McCarthy era in the 50s, you know, you have this fear that international forces pose sort of a unique problem because it's not just a person sort of spouting off, you know, I don't like the government. I'd like to defeat it. It's how much is this tied into an organized party that has the purposes, uh, purpose, one of its purposes, the overthrow of a government or yeah. overthrow of the capitalist system? And, and so these, these criminal syndicalism laws then are very much done in response to rising political sentiment. And in a broad sense, what kind of speech, what kind of activities do they prohibit? 
Well, their primary target is directed to any speech that was directed toward the overthrow, particularly through violence, of mm-hmm. you know political systems. You should know one of the earliest cases, uh, and probably one of the most quoted, Schenck versus United States, which I believe mm-hmm. is 1917. In that case, it's actually a National Espionage Act. You know, Woodrow Wilson is often lauded as a as a great progressive. But when it came to internal dissent, he clamped down harder than John Adams did in, in 1798. Uh, okay. You know, he had an, the Palmer raids on communists and socialists and anarchists and, and whatever. And so Schenck is a case where they articulated the so-called clear and present danger test. But looking back on it, you know, they end up putting somebody in jail basically for sending out literature telling people that they shouldn't register for the draft. And the court said, well, in the context of World War I, uh, that presents a danger that ordinarily, you know, it warrants prosecution. Hmm. Could, could you explain that clear and present danger standard? Because that hmm. seems to follow in subsequent First Amendment cases going up until the 70s. Yeah, it's no longer really current law, although the phrase is used a lot. But basically, it it starts with a really common sense notion that almost every right has some limitations. And in this case, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. says that, you know, even the most liberal law would not permit a person falsely to yell fire in a crowded theater just to cause a panic and see what would happen. And he, he offered what he thought was a fairly liberal one. You know, we're not going to suppress speech unless it causes clear and present danger. So if you said, well, something needs to be done, that wouldn't be clear. Yeah. So it would be the combination of those two. But realize that's one of the more liberal tests that was used. In, in Gitlow versus United States is 1925, the court uses what's known as the dangerous tendency test. Mm-hmm. So somebody's being prosecuted for literature that he sent out and basically sort of communist based. And it's like, well, it doesn't call for the overthrow of the government. But the tendency of this kind of literature, if people began to believe it, would be, you know, we don't, our government security would be in danger. I'm going to do a little editorializing here. Okay. If you don't want to comment, I'll forgive you. But, okay. you know, one of the things that I learned in the last series we did in December was really how the court's role in many ways is to prevent a fever of public opinion from influencing law. Yes. And when I listen to what you've told me so far about the application of some of these syndicalism laws, I can't help but feel like maybe the court fell down in this specific case. And and my reason being is, Using World War One as a pretense for prohibiting speech against the draft, for example, seems to me a case where you're using the political climate as justification for the suppression of a certain time, type of speech. No, I think it, it might be. I think that's might be too harsh on these folks, or no, I think that's accurate. Although, yeah. you know, to give them a little leeway, we we had similar reactions in the wake of nine eleven. Yeah, uh, we have, you know, in, in many ways, Trump's rhetoric is a response to an immigration problem that may not have been all that big a problem when, 
you know, but if you can make people, you know, if you can make people fear the other enough, uh, sometimes we do things that we would not do in calmer moments. 9-11 was definitely one that came to mind. And, and I don't know how you feel about this, but in everything I've read, it seems like when the court was confronted with a case about our activities, they seemed to do the right thing, in my opinion. I think that's I, I right. Don't, so, so it's interesting to see the courts behaving differently or the courts more likely to bend a public opinion back then than now. The great beauty and the great criticism of the court is that it's, it's a counter-majoritarian institution. The court isn't necessarily supposed to be a weather vane of popular opinion, mm-hmm. particularly in the issue of human rights. You know, the reason we have a Bill of Rights is because there, there are some freedoms that we don't think the majority has the right to take away from us. Mm-hmm. You know, freedom to worship as we please, freedom to say what we want, the, the guarantees of due process and the like. So, a lot of times when the court is under criticism, it's under criticism by people who they want their way now, mm-hmm. and maybe not be looking at, you know, the longer term uh, consequences. Yeah. And the big thing we talked about last month was how people tend to think the Supreme Court is partisan when the court rules in a way you don't like. Absolutely. And I, I would venture to say I'm about as guilty as anybody else of throwing tomatoes at the court over certain decisions. But once I started to dive into how they rule and how difficult some of these questions are, I I, I generally think to date they've done a decent job deferring. Part of the current problem is, and I'm I'm not trying to be partisan here, I, I think I'm as objective as I can, but, you know, Obama got, you could argue that he was cheated out of a nomination in his last year, you know, as president. And then you could, if you believe that was only fair, then you can say, well, Biden was cheated out of an appointment because Trump ended up getting a third appointment ratified very quickly. And that sort of emphasized partisanship in a way that maybe is a little more than typical. One of the things that, that I discovered through that process is that the appearance of partisanship at this point with the court as powerful as it is, is as dangerous as partisanship in the court itself. And I think that's kind of where we're at. The the way the court ruled on free speech, it seems like things kind of quiet down after the depression. Let me just mention that there, there are actually some cases from the 50s. One of them is Dennis versus United States, which involved whether you could prosecute someone who had helped organized the Communist Party of the United States. And it was a party that was explicitly, at least in some publications, devoted to the overthrow of government. And in that case, the court, as it often does, came up with yet another test, the gravity, the evil test, the evil of founding a party for the purpose of overthrowing the government was so great that it outweighed what normally would be your normal rights to association and, and speech. So again, that reflects the time in the McCarthy era. Yeah. Just a great fear of international communism. There there's some cases in the 40s and 50s that have to do with the degree to which a speaker is responsible for what happens or what might happen when he speaks. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of two contradictory precedents. One is Terminillo versus Chicago from 1949, in which someone is arrested for breach of the peace because the assembly that he's speaking to becomes unruly. Mm -hmm. And his conviction is overturned in a decision by Justice Douglas. 
And then I believe it's two years later, uh, Finer versus New York, someone is giving a very agitated speech on the, on the street corner, and his conviction is upheld probably because three times the policemen come to him and say, look, we don't think we can keep the crowd under control. You really need to move on. So there's some ambiguity there in terms of what degree is the speaker responsible for what happens subsequently. But then we can go to Brandenburg if you want. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested in that because I, I didn't come across either, either of those cases. I feel like they might be more applicable to what we're talking about today. Well, again, it has to do with an entry in there called Heckler's Veto. And, you know, this this is still a problem on college campuses. You know, you bring somebody controversial to campus and then the there's people in the audience have the right just to shout the person down in order to keep them from speaking. Or is it the responsibility of the people and particularly officers simply to keep the peace and let the person uh, speak? So the, these issues have been around for a while. And, you know, I used to make I guess it's a trichotomy. The United States, you have an absolute right to believe what you want. You have a fairly broad right to say what you want, absent uh, danger of limited lawless action, which we'll talk about. But when it comes to speech mixed with action, it becomes more problematic. And so, you know, the, the people that attacked the Capitol on January 6th, you probably would separate out people who went marching to the Capitol and held a sign and expressed their opinion about whether the election was fair or not from people who broke windows or assaulted police officers or, you know, committed actual physical damage to, to the property there. I think Brandenburg's going to dovetail into that well. Okay. So if you don't mind just talking about Brandenburg and, yeah. and this change to imminent lawless action. You know, one of the things you find when you read the Supreme Court and this is something people don't understand, too. You know, why does the Supreme Court sometimes side with Nazis? Why do they side with somebody from the Ku Klux Klan? And basically what you have is you have a Klan rally pretty much out in the middle of nowhere. They're burning a cross. A guy gets up and he says, you know, if things don't change, we might need to take some revengeance. He doesn't even use a real word here. And he's subsequently arrested for, I guess it would be breach of the peace or, or, or the like. And... The Supreme Court ultimately rules that, you know, what he said was inflammatory, but they were out in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't as though there were a group of African-Americans and he said, let's go attack. You know, they weren't even in a place where they probably could have done too much damage to anybody. And so there wasn't the, the imminent lawless action was meant to sort of replace clear and present. The imminent seems more imminent than than present, maybe. <laughs> so yeah. it's a way of yeah. sort of ratcheting up the standard a little bit higher. So let's let's take that then and go to the Capitol. So when I think about some sound bites that were used, you know, Rudy Giuliani saying trial by combat. Right. Mo Brooks saying we've got to kick some ass. I mean, Trump was I think he hedged his words like a mafioso. So I, I think you you couldn't, th there wasn't any deliberate incitement. Well, he at one point he said, we're going to fight like hell. Okay. So, uh, which, I mean, but again, would not necessarily mean a physical fight. 40% folks, 
That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. At one point, he said we're going to fight like hell. Okay. Uh, Which, I mean, but again, would not necessarily mean a physical fight. So how how does that fall under the context of imminent lawless action then, when you look at what happened afterwards? I'm going to use a term that Howard Baker used in the Watergate hearings. Mm -hmm. Part of this depends on what did he know and when did he know it, Mm. which is to say, I don't think when he gave the speech, I don't think if the attack had begun on the Capitol, I don't believe that he knew it. Now, there does seem to be evidence that when he did find out about the attack on the Capitol, he didn't do anything. Well, he didn't do anything for a while. He eventually got up and gave a speech, but most of the damage had been done. And here what complicates this when it comes to tort law and and negligence law, you know, we often ask, you know, does a person have a duty of care? So this recent case in Michigan, which will be, you know, is a fascinating one with the school shooting. Mm -hmm. Normally, you wouldn't blame somebody at school for not picking up on the fact that somebody's going to shoot. But if you have parents who have just bought somebody a gun and don't report that, they may have breached a duty of care. And a president, as chief executive of the United States, has an absolute duty of care to see that the laws are executed. And one of those laws, of course, you know, provides for a peaceful transition of power, certainly would provide for the protection of members of Congress and, and the like. Yeah, don't trash the Capitol, I think, is a... Yeah. <laughs> you know, you'd have to be a lawyer to know that's a bad idea. I think that's probably and, right. Yeah. And so it sounds to me then like the speech itself that was used most likely isn't in and of itself problematic. The problem more lies in what occurred after. 
And right. Again, this is one reason. And I was very pleased to see, you know, D.C. Court of Appeals handed down this decision in Thompson versus Trump, which has to do with what documents can the president assert executive privilege over and which can he not. And at this stage, at least, and it'll probably go now to the Supreme Court, but the district court and the circuit court have both said, first, that the primary custodian of executive privilege is a sitting president rather than a previous president, but that Congress probably has the right in preventing something like this from happening again to ask for documents from the president you know, know who he met with, know who he had phone calls with, to know, was he doing something behind the scenes to egg it on? One could say that he was impeached on this subject and not convicted, but that has to do with removal from office rather than, you know, criminal or civil liability. So that, that'd probably be a separate issue. Yeah. So the, I think the the short of it, it seems like the, the right to speech seems fairly absolute from, from what you're telling me. Um, there was another thing I wanted to get into, though, which is when we look at, and I'll, I'll use Unite the Right, and I'll use McKesson as well. Okay. For those of you who aren't aware, McKesson v. Doe is a, a decision that was brought before the Supreme Court. A police officer sued the organizer of a Black Lives Matter rally in Louisiana because uh, he was hit with a rock. And so there's the question of, is that organizer liable for what happened to this police officer? And, and I think the, the thing I find interesting about those cases is that, yes, like the, the government can't necessarily say you can't say that, or they can't necessarily tie an act of violence to you based on speech. But I do think the civil suits in and of themselves are almost a cudgel. And, and I wonder if you see any problems with the use of civil suits as almost being an end run around the First Amendment for certain states. And I know that could be a far leap, but I, I wanted to get your take on that, because I, I'm definitely not endorsing what happened at the Unite the Right rally sure. by any stretch of the imagination, nor am I endorsing throwing rocks at police officers. But I would say that if you have a system where organizers can face enormous financial da- damages for something somebody else at their rally does, that's almost as good as banning the speech altogether. And, and again, a lot of this ends up as factual determination. Yeah. Did What did the leader advise? You know, Did they take any precautions to prevent these kind of measures or not? The yeah. part of, do, now do understand, and I'm sure you do, a civil case is brought by private parties. And of course, one advantage in terms of getting some kind of compensation if damage occurs is that the standards are different. You know, in a, in a criminal case, it's beyond reasonable doubt. In a civil case, I believe it's typically preponderance of the evidence, and it may vary a little bit from state to state. But, but yeah, I mean, there is a potential problem, which I assume would typically be taken care of by judicial instructions. I think a judge would need to be very careful to say, in the United States, you have you know, a very liberal right to speak your mind and then you know, make this distinction between speech and action and you know, speech that provokes and speech that incites. And maybe, maybe there's a better distinction there. Holmes once said that every, every idea is an incitement. And in a sense, that's true. But 
you know, you're going to have an incitement to intellectual knowledge rather than to violence. In getting to your point, too, a civil suit is is brought between two citizens. Right. So it's not the government necessarily enforcing it. it what, what I'm wondering is if it's the government enabling it in a way. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So I generally am pretty open about my my partisan history on this podcast. So Fair everyone who's listened for a while knows I am I am what I like to call a Republican defector. So at some point in time, I left the party, and now my one of my friends likes to describe me as ranging between blue and dark blue. So we'll <laughs> you know whatever that means. It may be that the party deserted you. That's how I. That feel. <laughs> I, that's what I I like to think. I stayed in the same place. Yes. So there was years ago. I was working. I was volunteering on a Republican campaign. It was our governor Bill Weld, who was mm-hmm. more libertarian than anything else, and. The unions absolutely hated him. And it was routine that there'd be a fight between one or more union folks and somebody on the the other side. And there was never any sort of talk of civil suits. There was never that level of heat. And, And when I look at, you know, bringing a case for a Black Lives Matter rally before a jury or bring a case of a white nationalist rally in front of a jury, I think the content in and of itself could be viewed as, you know, prejudicial. I mean, am I, am I making sense here? You know, it's, what, what do they say? Sticks and stones can break my bones, yeah. but words can never hurt me. Well, words do hurt, but words don't result in somebody having a brain injury or being shot and, and wounded in, in, in the attack on the Capitol. Yeah. And again, the people who are ultimately responsible are the people who committed those violent actions. But if they're if there's somebody egging them on uh, and knows that that's what they're doing, then they may share some of the culpability. I, I generally think overall we have done a better job addressing the current political instability and instances of political violence now than even we did back in 9-11 to your, to your earlier point. I think the courts have done a much better job. I think Congress has done a much better job staying out of it. One might argue because they can't really agree on much of anything at this point. So the idea that they'd pass a law (laughs) against a certain type of political speech is a little bit laughable. And and it sounds to me like, like in your estimation, really, the civil courts or how do I put this? Civil suits are really a way to regulate instances where that gets out of control and might be a better apparatus than having the government intervene somewhere. let, Let me borrow a concept from a related area. Yeah, because, you know, freedom of speech is intimately tied to freedom of the press and the primary rule. And it takes a little bit of time studying this to to sort of pick up on it. But the primary rule in freedom of the press is what's called a presumption against prior restraint, which means we don't have a licensing system. We don't have somebody telling us what we can say or what we can print. But. There may be times where you will be subsequently prosecuted for the consequences of what you did. So, in fact, we have this case right now with Assange, and I'm not particularly familiar with it. But if, in fact, he illegally obtained and illegally released certain documents, he could still be subject to prosecution, Uh, not for a political view he expressed, but for 
a very specific law against leaking. And political rhetoric became so extreme, especially under Trump, that it's hard to know what libel would be anymore. But (laughs) if you do so recklessly and knowing that the material was false, you can subsequently have a civil suit against you and lose a lot of money for it. And so it's sort of a related concept. You have the right to speak, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you won't in some ways be responsible for some of the consequences particularly if they end in violence and you had a, you know, really good way of knowing that that was likely. You know, one of the concepts I've been thinking about a lot lately, especially given all I've learned about the courts recently, is the the idea of self-governance and the idea that the very nature of this country, the very nature of the Constitution is built around limiting when government can intervene. Yes. And the interesting thing I'm finding about this conversation is that it seems that we have this bifurcated system where you have the criminal system that it very unambiguous as to what the government's ability to prosecute speech is, which is more or less nil. But it does seem like civil suits do offer a way for citizens to self-govern because you have two citizens in court being judged by a jury of their peers. And so it does seem to me that it's almost a self-regulatory system. And in that system, you can blur the lines because, again, it's not codified. It's not the federal government actually going in. And again, in in early uh, American history, it was even more complicated because you could have state laws regulating something that would be under a different constitutional standard, depending on their constitution, from federal prosecutions. I wanted to read something that I think you would appreciate, and that I'm I'm working on a book right now on presidential inaugurations. And I happen to go to Mr. Jefferson's University, as we call it in Virginia. Okay. And his first inauguration, and most people know this line, we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists. And this was, you know, this was we think our we think modern campaigns are rough. Republicans were accusing Adams of being a hermaphrodite. They were accusing Jeffersonians of being atheists. And we know the line, we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists. But then he says, if there be any among us who would wish to dissolve the Union or change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated when reason is left free to combat it. You know, I guess if there's a if there's a concern many of us have right now is it sometimes seems, and I don't know if it was Churchill or someone said something to the effect of, you know, rumors and falsehoods go around the world two or three times before uh, truth gets its boots on. <laughs> and particularly in the cycle of 24-hour news and more entertainment versus information, I think sometimes it takes a while for facts and for truth uh, to sort of catch up with, you know, with some of the lies and falsehoods. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. And if you have comments, questions, or other feedback you'd like to share, feel free to email me direct at heydan, that's H-E-Y as in hey, D-A-N is in my name, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. 
I will also have links to some of David's other work in the show notes on the website, same as the email, ydhty.com. Now, a few big ideas from this conversation that stuck out to me. First, and this is something we explored in the episode with Susanna Sherry from December, is the idea that the court isn't a weather vane of public opinion, but quite the opposite. It's often there to ensure temporary swings in public opinion don't trample the rights of one or more minorities. Now, number two is that 200 years of case law set a precedent where the government has very limited power when it comes to holding people criminally responsible for what they say or what happens as a result of what they say. And if we're looking at Trump specifically, we could say, as John mentioned in this episode, that he failed in the duty of care statute, but it would be a fairly difficult case to make. The last one, and this is where the episode's question lies, are civil suits a good way to ensure political rallies don't turn violent, or could they pose a threat to our freedom of assembly or freedom of speech? I would love to hear what you have to say, so feel free to email me at heydan, H-E-Y-D-A-N, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. That's an idea we are going to be exploring further in the next episode. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, Y-D-H-T-Y's producer and editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. Y-D-H-T-Y is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye.